Welcome everyone to Covenant City Church um, online recording of a prayer and also the sermon for this morning. Of course, as you may know, our services have been suspended for the next two weeks and we're doing all we can still to continue in God's word for us and also so that we might still observe the Sabbath day today on this Lord's Day. Friends, before we actually move on to uh, just a brief intercessory prayer and also to the scripture reading and the sermon itself. Let me just remind us in a tumultuous time such as this one, which might be confusing for a lot of us, anxiety-inducing, let me just remind us of three fundamental theological principles that could keep us grounded in such a confusing time. First, let me remind us, friends, who are watching or listening to this at home and not at church this morning, God remains in control that even though COVID-19 is out there and everyone might still be confused, uh, we are reminded that God is the one in charge. This therefore causes us not to panic as nothing takes God by surprise. Not a hair can fall from our head without the Father's will as the Heidelberg Catechism question one reminds us. So God continues to be in control. He continues to not be surprised by anything that comes to pass and therefore even this viral outbreak, just as any other plagues in the past, any other calamity that come our way, we know comes from the control of an all-wise, all-powerful, and all-good God, and therefore we have no reason to panic. But God's control, of course, uses secondary causes. This means that God controls all things, upholds all order, precisely by the means of doctors, by means of medication, by means of our prayers, and by means of Christian wisdom. Which means that when we believe in God's control, this doesn't mean that we get to be uh, negligent or that we would therefore bypass the agency of the people around us and our own Christian wisdom, but rather we can't neglect these things because God wisely orders all things and causes us to be taken care of as we take up these secondary measures and secondary means. So even as we do not panic, we need to remain cautious, we need to remain uh, protective of our families. We need to continue to love our neighbors using all the secondary causes that we can. Second, even as we do these things, we need to remember the principle that God is unchangeable. God is utterly immutable. God doesn't change his plans. God continues to be wise and holy. And precisely because God is unchangeable, we continue to have hope and rest. This is the anchor of the Christian's contentment and non-anxiety. Through tumultuous times, through the historical changes that we see before us, and even as we hope for an unseen future, and as things come our way that might take us by surprise, we understand that even though history changes, God remains the same, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And finally, we have to remember, even in the midst of this chaos, perhaps, or confusion around us, that God continues to love us in Christ Jesus, that this viral outbreak for those of us who are in Christ, cannot be a sign of condemnation, cannot be a sign of God's judgment and wrath towards us that is final or penal in nature, but rather God loves us in Christ Jesus, and therefore God continues to be with us even when we might not be able to feel it in the moment. And so we have to remember, friends, that even though we as Christians are not exempt from worldly sorrows and earthly calamity. 
and we're not promised any kind of worldly gratification, far be it from us to promise to Christians that if we believe in Jesus, we will no longer be sick and we will no longer be unwell. But rather, instead of promising us earthly gratification and earthly exemption from all sorrow, suffering, and sickness, friends, we're reminded that we've been given the one thing that we truly need, the only thing that we truly need, the only thing that will satisfy us, not just in this life, but in eternity. And the thing that cures our deepest problem, not just an earthly problem. That is, that we're sinners in the hands of a holy God. Christ Jesus came into the world not simply to make us healthy or wealthy, but rather Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. We were sinners and we were deserving of condemnation. But Jesus Christ came and he died the death that we should have died and he lived the life that he should have lived. He lived the perfect life so that we might be with him in the last day. And this is the promise of God, not other earthly blessing, but rather that we would be saved from our deepest problems, the judgment of God and the sinfulness of our natures. So friends, take heart in that. Our uh, salvation is secured in Christ Jesus. And so we are reminded of that climactic passage in the book of Romans. If you turn there with me now, in the book of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, where Paul considers all kinds of distresses, all kinds of things could befall on Christians. And yet, even in the midst of all these things, Christ Jesus remains with us. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, I hope that these reminders could help us as Christians be a source of wisdom, hospitality, and become a light in a dark world so that we might not feed in the midst of this confusion more confusion, that we might not be feeding xenophobia, that we might not be forgetting the elderly, that we might not got lost in the fear or the panic, but friends, we continue in humble reliance and trust upon this immutable God who loves us in Christ Jesus to be a source of hope for our neighbors and continue therefore to offer warmth, hospitality, and the gospel to a dying world. Let me pray for us now in our intercessory prayer. Father, we pray therefore for this nation. We pray, Lord God, that all the doctors and governmental authorities, Father, be wise and that they will continue to administer your common grace to your people, that they would care for those who are most vulnerable, that they would continue, Lord God, not to seek their own gain, but rather to gain the welfare of our neighbors. 
Father, we also pray for those of us who are sick, members of CCC, and those who are not members of CCC, Father, that they may be recovering, that they may be healed, that they have people around them to remind them of the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that they will continue to hope in the Lord God, even when they're fighting through temptations and battles, Lord God, within their body. Father, we also pray, Lord God, for the churches around the city and all over around the world, Father, who are also, like us, continuing to observe Sabbath by holding online services, by recording sermons and their services, Father. We pray, Lord God, that the members of your church will continue to faithfully use these means of grace to not only edify them, but also obey your commandments, Father. And we pray as well, Lord God, that the church would not lose sight of the main task that they were given, not, Lord God, to promise earthly blessings, but rather to show them forth Christ Jesus as we are united to him, we're given redemption from our sins. And Father, that we too as Covenant City Church would not stray forth from this simple gospel that we are sinners in the hands of your condemnation. And without your grace, Father, we would have no hope. But Father, you lived the perfect life in Christ Jesus. You lived the life that we should have lived. And therefore, we now can have hope of the righteousness of God, precisely because of your Son in Jesus Christ. So Father, as we end this time in intercessory prayer, and for those of us who are at home who are listening, we continue to pray the prayer that you have told your disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm chapter 19. We're going through this particular whole psalm this morning. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 14. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declares me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you have revealed yourself in creation, that there is this wordless speech, nonverbal revelation of yourself in 
nature, Father, so that we can consider the majesticness of your glory and your transcendence, Father, as we observe the created world around us. And Father, not only have you revealed yourself in general revelation, you've also revealed yourself in your word, in special revelation, in the scriptures, in the law and the testimony, and ultimately, of course, in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, so that we might become wise, so that our souls may be revived, let us therefore consider this word together. Father, help us focus today at our homes. Help us focus so that we might apply this gospel to our lives today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we are uh, taking a break from the book of James. Uh, so, sorry, we've finished this, this series in the book of James, and therefore we're taking a little break before we begin the series in the book of Romans in a couple of weeks. And therefore, we're just taking these next couple of weeks on a couple of psalms here, Psalm 19, particularly this week. And this is a particularly doctrinal psalm. There's a lot of doctrine in this psalm, and I think a lot of um, philosophers, theologians in the history of interpretation have taken this psalm in particularly heady directions. But I just want to focus on how this particular psalm actually shows us not only, yes, clear doctrine, but also the gospel in a very existential and practical fashion. And this psalm, therefore, communicates to us not only that God reveals himself in nature, but he also reveals himself in the Bible, in the word of God, in his testimonies, in his law, in his commandments, in his precepts, and ultimately, of course, in Jesus Christ. And the passage that we're going through today, therefore, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 14, can actually be divided into two parts very clearly. The first part is in verses 1 to 6, and this is talking about God's revelation in creation. Uh, the created world around us reveals the glory of God. But then the second half is from verses 7 to 14, and this talks about God's revelation in the Bible, God's revelation in words and deeds through redemptive history recorded for us through the apostles and the prophets. And so we're just going to go through this psalm here today, and there are three points that I want to point out. From today's sermon. First, why we need God's word, and second, how God's word works, and third, the center, the purpose of the word of God, all right? First, why we need it, second, how it works, and third, the purpose of the word of God, all right? First then, why we need God's word, and we're going to get this first point basically from the first six or seven verses as we consider God's revelation and creation, And we're going to see that even though God reveals himself in the natural world, this actually points us to its own insufficiency and that we actually need God's word in addition to and in supplement of to interpret God's natural revelation. So why do we need God's word? Here's the first point then. First, uh, let me just consider the, the first three verses here as we are seeing in these three verses the revelation that God actually reveals himself non-verbally. In other words, God reveals himself without words in all of creation in the natural order. Look at what it says here, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Notice the uh, imagery here. It's a metaphor of sorts, right? That the skies above us, the heavens They declare the glory of God. The word here uh, uh, reminds us of the image of preaching, of speaking, of declaration. 
uh, that the heavens above and the world around us proclaims his handiwork. This is something that happens all around us, and therefore there's no escaping the fact that there is a nonverbal declaration of God's glory, particularly, verse 1 says, in all of creation. But notice, even though it says day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night, again, reveals knowledge so that we truly know God, it says in verse 3 that this is a speech without speech. This is revelation without words. This is proclamation without voice. In other words, this, this communication of nature to us, that nature was created by a glorious God, is one that comes through to us, that penetrates into us without any kind of verbal language attached to it. There's no use of words in the revelation of God's glory within our hearts here and, and all around us here. So this is, of course, not something that is completely alien or foreign to us, right? Uh, we know that we can communicate things without words all the time, right? Uh, I would actually consider, for example, public speaking as a two-way communication. It's very helpful to me right now as I'm recording to an empty room that there are a few phases here because then I can tell what uh, the congregation or the listeners are thinking about. I can tell simply by body language, even though you're not communicating to me in words, uh, how you're feeling. I can tell if you're agitated. I can tell if you're uh, uh, bored by the sermon, perhaps, or I could tell when you're on your phone. Yes, I could tell that. And I could also tell whether or not you're engaged and listening and attentive and interested in what uh, the text is saying, right? In other words... Uh, when you're public speaking, even when you're preaching, you can actually not only communicate to the people who are listening, but the people who are listening communicates back. They reciprocate that communication by, by body language, by nonverbal cues all the time. Or as I often say as an analogy, right, all you have to do to know whether or not your wife is angry at you is simply to enter into her room, your room, that now just feels like her room because you're like, an alien suddenly there, and then you feel that there's this angered, cold tension against you, but there were no words. You can tell simply by body language, and the moment you've entered the domain of your wife, you know that you've done something wrong. And that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening here in the first three verses. You've, you're actually in the domain of God. This is God's sphere. This is God's land. This is God's world. And therefore, you know all the time, you're conscious all the time, that this universe is not about you, that this universe is proclaiming something other than you, something much greater than you, and that you are not the center of the story. Rather, it is not your glory that is being proclaimed throughout the universe, but rather God's glory. And that's what's being communicated here in the first three verses, that there is a nonverbal communication to you, that there is a glorious God over you in the first three verses. And the next four verses, next three verses, sorry, verses four, five, and six, uh, enunciate this point and highlights verse two. Verse two says that day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, uh, what general revelation or God's created world has communicated to you truly has produced in you knowledge of God. In other words, it's not as if this revelation in creation is unclear or somehow opaque and therefore it needs a lot of human diligence to see God's glory in it. Rather, this revelation of God in nature is so powerful, so sufficient, and so clear that it clearly does reveal 
knowledge. So that in Romans 1, which iterates on this theme, it says that no human being is with excuse. We are without excuse. We know that there is a God. Look at the language here in verses 4, 5, and 6. Their voice, or the voice, this voiceless voice of nature, this voice without words, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Notice what the psalm is emphasizing here. This voice of nature that screams out that there is a glorious God is universal. It is not something that you can run away from. Uh, it is something that is uncontainable. It is something that is ultimately unsuppressible. It is something that gets through to every human being. In other words, what this passage and what Romans 1 along with it is going to communicate to us as we go through the book of Romans in a couple of weeks, is that there is provocatively no such thing as a true atheist. There's no such thing, there's no pure atheism going around. Rather, even despite the fact that we might express or opine that there is no God or that we believe that there is no God, deep within us, there is an innate sense of divinity as the old theologians used to call it. There's a sense of the divine. There's an intuitive knowledge of God that is ingrained within us precisely because we live and exist in a world that continually communicates to us that there is the glory of God all around us. Now, this passage and Romans 1 particularly have been used in the history of Christian thought, again, by a lot of popular apologists even today as kind of a proof text to justify uh, a kind of apologetics that says that we need to defend or prove God's existence by way of reason alone or simply by constructing theistic proofs of God's existence, right? And so they start to make up uh, proofs of God's existence, let's say the arguments of God's existence uh, from a design in the world. They argue, well, if you take a look at the world, there's features of design. And from these features of a design, we can infer that there must be a designer, that this is a better explanation than then if there's not a designer, and therefore that this designer is God. Or some people might come up with the cosmological proof of God's existence, which says that the universe cannot be a result of an infinite regression of causes, and therefore the universe must have had a first cause, and this first cause must be himself an uncaused God, namely of course, the God of the Christian Bible, an uncaused first mover. But I want us to see how far away and removed this is from those kind of rational proofs of God's existence. In other words, passages like this doesn't say that uh, the knowledge of God is out there somewhere, and if we can just prove it by reason, we can therefore get to a knowledge of God. Rather, this passage is saying that we already know God apart from any proofs. We already know God apart from the diligent use of our reasoning. We already know God uh, even independent of our intellectual work, so to speak, on creation, right? In other words, what this passage is saying is, what if apologetics is less about convincing people that there is a God and more about exposing them to the fact that they've always known God in the first place? And that what they're trying to do in denying Christ and denying God 
is precisely by suppressing the knowledge that they already have. This is, again, the language of Romans 1. We suppress the truth. It's all around us, but we refuse to believe in it. And so this is the work of defending the faith, is to showcase how unbelief actually continues to try to erase uh, this, this knowledge of God within them, and we're trying to expose them and wake them up to this fact that they are being uh, uh, repressing this knowledge of God that is within them. And so, hence, this knowledge of God that is universal in creation actually reveals to us uh, something quite terrifying, if you think about it, right? And this does get to the central points of why we need God's word. Again, coming back to our, the, the heading of our first point, why do we need God's word? Look at verse 7 here. Verse 7, when it moves and pivots to the law of God or the Bible, the the words of God, the special revelation, the word of God in verbal form. Remember, God's revelation in nature is not with words, but God's revelation in the scriptures and the law is with words. Notice the first thing it says about this word of God in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect and what does it do? It revives the soul. The Bible has the power, with the power of the Holy Spirit, to revive the soul. And what does it say, therefore, about God's revelation in nature? What does it say about this knowledge of God that is universally accessible and universally penetrating into our hearts? This natural revelation is not able to revive the soul. In other words, this natural creational revelation in God's world only reveals to us that our souls need reviving and that we are dead. We're not capable of saving ourselves. This is exactly what's being revealed to us in creation, that there is a glorious God, and guess what? We fall short of that glory. We can't meet its standards. We're not perfect like the glory of God is. We cannot uh, be adequate enough to become like God. We're not good, in other words. And so, notice at the end of verse 6 here. You've read verse 6 just now. Uh, notice it says that this God's uh, general revelation, God's revelation and creation, is all around us and the end of the heavens, and a circuit is to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat, right? A lot of you, probably when you first read that passage, like I did, we were all thinking, man, this is so comforting. God is everywhere. God is present everywhere. No matter where I go, the psalmist often says, no matter where I put my bed, no matter where I try to flee, no matter where I am in fear or calamity, God remains present and with us. But why do we assume that this is a comforting thing? Why do we assume that an all-knowing, all-holy, all-just God, if this person was present wherever, where you go, and therefore sees everything you do, sees everything that you've ever done in the past, knows everything that you've ever done and will do in the dark, in the private quarters of your own home, are you truly going to say that this is a comforting thought? Are you truly going to say that a holy God watching all over you, knowing everything you've ever done is actually something comforting, giving you warm, fuzzy feelings inside? This is not actually the point of this particular passage here. It's actually communicating to us, friends, that if you consider the glory of God in creation, we ought to be totally terrified. That simply by living in God's world, we're going to always feel this sense of inadequacy. There's something above us and beyond us 
that makes us unable to meet its standard. We're so far below the glory of God. You know, something that I always like to note when I'm watching um, interviews or uh, videos of um, famous or successful people or celebrities, I note this reoccurring pattern in these interviews. Uh, Let me just give a few examples here. Conan O'Brien, Haley Williams, and Adam Sandler, right? Just really quickly here. And you're going to see in these interviews that there's a reoccurring pattern that no matter how successful they are, no matter how uh, famous or rich or well-regarded they have become, they can't get rid of the sense that they're not the people that people think that they are, that they're actually way lower, that they're imposters that have fooled everybody, and that they're not actually as good as whatever people make them out to be, right? So Conan O'Brien and the Oxford Union um, uh, uh, interview a year ago or so, and this is a student association interview at the University of Oxford, uh, he recounts a story of how a, a, a comedian just starting out came up to him and asked him, you know, I feel that when people like me, I fooled everyone. And I'm not supposed to be here, that my success so far is just a fluke, and that someday, somewhere, somebody's going to find out that I'm just an imposter, I'm a fake. I'm not supposed to be funny or successful. And this uh, comedian who's starting out asked Conan, like, when does that feeling of inadequacy ever uh, disappear? When do you feel like you've actually made it, that you're successful now, that you've gotten there now, you've gone through it, you've, you've, you've figured it out, you're successful? And Conan O'Brien just looked at him and said, you never do. You never do. Uh, until now, he feels like, I haven't got it all figured out. Until now, he feels like he's fooled everybody, and one day he's going to be found out he's a culprit, and he's just faked it all. He's never really that funny, and he's never really that smart. He's never really got it all figured out. You never erase a sense of inadequacy. And Haley Williams, in her interview with Zane Lowe um, on an iTunes podcast, I believe, she actually said that she had to take a break from touring, take a break from social media, take a break from meeting fans. Because when she meets her fans and they come up to her and they say, you're my hero, you're, you're, you're everything, you know, you are so great. She would constantly say that she would have this highlight reel in her mind of all the wrongs that she's ever done. All of her past mistakes and failures, all of her inadequacies, in other words. And therefore, she constantly tells herself to, to these fans you know, in her own head, you don't really know me. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know what I've done. I'm a, I'm a terrible person. And also Adam Sandler, in a conversation that, that he had um, among actors, he says, you know, he tries to avoid uh, reading reviews at all because when they're positive, he says, uh, of his movies, when they're positive reviews of his movies, he would say, well, he just fooled them all. They don't know what it was like working on the set. And that if, if all the reviews are positive and there's one negative review, he would think that one negative review, that's the one that understood me. That's the one that saw through me. I fooled everybody else, but that guy, that one critic, he saw exactly what I'm about. And so no matter what you do, friends, even if you try to drown it out with relationships or work, or even if it is actually trying to be drowned out by positive criticism and feedback from people around you and critics and reviews and things like that, there's this sense within us that we can't seem to get rid of that we're not right, that we're not good. And this is why we remember our faults way better than we remember our good deeds. This is why we remember criticisms way more than we remember good, positive encouragement, right? 
There's something about us that tells us that when some negative thing comes our way, that's what's right about us. And when there's good validation, that's not what's right about us. There's something deep within us that is wrong. And so we need reviving. And God's created revelation. It can do that. It can revive the soul. And so we need to turn, therefore, to God's word. This is why we need God's word. It cannot revive the soul. So how, therefore, this is the second point of the sermon. How does the word of God work? Notice here verses 7 to 10. It actually tells us the effects of God's word, right? The, the results of the word of God working within you. It says here that the law of the Lord revives the soul. Verse 8, it rejoices the heart, right? And before that, it says that it makes wise the symbol. And that this, this word enlightens the eyes. And therefore, as a result, they are to be more desired than gold. Verse 10, even much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The result of actually getting the word of God is wonderful to the soul because it revives us. It, it, it so to speak, validates us. It, it makes us wise. It rejoices us. Why? Because when we consider ourselves simply apart from it, we need reviving. We're dead. Our, our, our eyes are not light and we're darkened. And we are not righteous. We're not wise. And we need our hearts to be revived and we need to become rejoicing again. Well, how in the world does it do that? And actually, the answer to this is found in verses 11, 12, and 13 specifically. Well, how does it do it? How does the word of God actually revive the soul, making us enlightened and rejoicing? Well, look at verse 11. It says that by them, by the law of God, by the testimony of the Lord, by the precepts of the Lord, the commandments and the fear of the Lord, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So notice, how does it work? By warning us. Wait, does that mean that actually, how does it revive the soul? It revives the soul first by giving us more bad news before it gets to the good news, right? It gives us more warnings, verse 11 says. Well, what kind of warnings? Well, verse 12 and 13 tells us, who can discern his errors? And that's a rhetorical question. No one could discern their errors. Uh, we cannot know just how many errors that we've actually done. In other words, what the Bible communicates to us is that we are way worse than we really are. We can try to drown out that sense of inadequacy by means of accomplishments and relationships and work and substance abuse, but we can't get rid of the sense of inadequacy. And we get to the Bible, it actually communicates to us that that sense of, of wrongness, that sense of inadequacy that you feel, you're way worse than you've ever actually thought. Because friends... How does it reveal this, 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 this bad nature of ours, this terrible nature of ours, this, this warning to us, right? Well, verses 12 and 13 tells us, it declares to us that we have hidden faults that we need to be forgiven of, that, that we need to become innocent of these hidden faults. And verse 13, that we also have presumptuous sins, right? So not only do we have hidden faults, we also have high-handed sins. Sins that we commit willingly and happily. Presumptuous sins, right? Conscious, intentional sin. And therefore, we have committed great transgression. In other words, what, how the Bible works and how God's word works is that we are revealed to be way worse than we are because our problem, friends, is not primarily social or pragmatic or work-related. It's not the sense that we are not supposed to be successful, or that we've hurt others in the past, though I'm sure we have, 
or that we are just simply psychologically inadequate or pragmatically we have consequences to our lives that are negative, but rather our main issue is not simply all those things, but rather that we have wronged a perfect and holy God. That's the root problem. That's what's underneath all the social, psychological, pragmatic issues that come arise in our lives. We are sinners, both hidden faults and presumptuously. We have sinned, right, against this God. And so let me just try to get clear about what the Bible here says about hidden faults and presumptuous sins, right? Uh, Remember again that we know God simply by nature, by living in God's world, in God's uh, uh, kingdom here, right, in creation. Now, I draw this insight from a missiologist who actually worked in Java from the Netherlands called uh, J.H. Boving or Johan Boving. He's the nephew of the great Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Boving. Johan Boving, writing between 1940 to 1950, um, he actually argued that when we're thinking about these hidden faults that the psalm is talking about, and this natural revelation, and, and the way we suppress the truth in Romans 1, he's actually saying here that we need to take of these things as psychological truths that we do um, that is much like how people deal with trauma. How do people deal with trauma? What do you do with traumatic cases in your life, right? What do you do with these traumatic memories in your past, right? What we do with trauma is that we try to suppress them as much as possible, right? Uh, Think about, for example, if you had a a bad relationship with your father and you had a a terrible thing happen to you and the relationship just fell apart and you ran away from home and this was 15, 20 years ago and you're now living in a different country, you don't want to think about your dad. You don't want to think about your family. You've left that behind, right? And what happens to this traumatic period in your life is that you suppress it daily. You avoid particular foods, perhaps, that remind you of your family. You avoid particular places that remind you of your family. You, you avoid their Facebook profiles and Instagram profiles. And you do this on a daily level, such that the more you do it, the more you try to cover it up, the more and more that these acts of suppression become unconscious and become hidden to you. You do this all the time that you don't even think about it anymore, but you constantly do avoid it. You tell your friends maybe that you don't like ice cream because ice cream reminds you of your family maybe. I don't know. But you simply avoid it all the time that you don't even think about it anymore. These are hidden ways that we suppress these traumatic memories, right? But what happens with victims of trauma or traumatic events in our past is that even as we suppress these memories, even as we try to so-called suppress the truth of these memories of the past, right, we can't ever really get rid of them. And the way they come up is that triggers arise around us, right? Because no matter how much you want to avoid that ice cream place or how much you want to avoid that Instagram post, you're going to see these things. People are going to remind you of these things. Maybe you get a phone call from a sibling. Maybe you get a, a, um, a, an Instagram sent to you that you didn't want to see, right? These are things simply that occur to you and precisely because these things have occurred to you. And hence, these triggers actually cause that traumatic suppression to be released for a moment. And those memories kind of just rush back. And precisely in these kind of moments when these triggers are encountered by you, uh, these acts of repression are no longer working and you're reminded of these memories, these hidden ways that you suppress the truth and unconsciously avoid these triggers and these memories again and again, you're reminded of them. And hence, this is normally when 
they high-handedly deny these memories, right? Maybe, again, these memories are these Instagram posts. They're reminded of these things to you, and then you say things like, well, I had no family. I don't care about my family. I've ran away from that. I have a new identity now. I need to forget about them. I've forgotten about them. They don't exist to me anymore, right? So in both hidden ways and unconscious ways, we suppress the truth and those traumatic memories. And also in presumptuous ways or in high-handed, explicit, conscious ways, we try to deny the reality of our past as well, right? Well, if that's the case, friends, with our normal traumatic experiences of the past or our relational ruptures in the past, right? Notice what Johan Boving is trying to get across here is that our ultimate traumatic rupture was not any natural relationship that we had, but rather we have a traumatic break of relationship with God himself. In other words, deep within our consciousness, we have memories of who we are in Adam. That before we were born, uh, we had sin in Adam. And as we were born, we're conceived in sin. We're guilty and polluted because of that original sin. And we, ha- we have committed faults against God. And so precisely because of this guilt, precisely because of all the transgressions we had against God, our maker, and we constantly live in his domain, reminding us of the fact that we know this God. There are triggers all around us. When we see things all around us, we're reminded that we have a God who's watching over us. We're reminded of the fact that things are simply not right with him. That we don't have the relationship that we ought to have with him. We have this, therefore, this universal sense of guilt within us. No matter where we go, we cannot escape this God. So we try to drown that out. We try to drown that out by way of intellectual argumentation. We try to convince ourselves that God doesn't exist. We try to drown that out by relationships. We get ourselves to intoxication by substance abuse, by diving ourselves into work in order so that we're so busy that we don't think about this relationship that we have with God. We try, in other words, to suppress the reality that we're guilty before this holy God. We have hidden faults. And when these triggers come up, we try to say to ourselves presumptuously, I don't know this God, that this God doesn't exist to us. You know, uh, an imagery here is precisely as a teenage son denies that his father exists in rebellion against him. So do we now try to make ourselves believe that things are okay with us and that this God that we're trying to run away from is not real. So Johann Bavink argues that we play hide-and-seek with this God. We run away from him and we suppress the truth in so many ways. And so this is exactly how the word of God works. It pierces into our soul, declares to us that we have hidden faults that we need to repent from, and that we have presumptuous sins, that we have this relationship rupture that was traumatic for us in the past against God. We try to suppress the truth in both unconscious and conscious ways against God. And this is the only way, friends, that you can actually see the word of God as beautiful, that you can see the word of God as making you wise, the word of God as rejoicing your heart, as desirable, as enlightening your eyes, friends. You can only see that when you don't run away from those passages, from his law, from his punishments, from his testimonies, from his precepts that actually show to you, warn you that you're not good, that we are not good, that all is not right with us, that we need to stop deceiving ourselves to thinking that everything is okay and that we are simply good enough as we are because we're not. Because friends, 
you will never see the beauty of the grace of God and the beauty of the word of God unless you first see how much your soul needs reviving. That's how the word of God works. Not if you take away all the problem passages that make you feel bad. Not if you simply look at those comforting promises because that would simply turn God and turn this word into another message from fortune cookies into another feel-good message that you would see on your Pinterest account, into something else that you would see from a self-help book that you would get in a bookstore, right? The only way this word can actually penetrate into your soul, making you rejoice, is if you see the warnings against us, that we're not made out to be, we're, we're not as good as we think we are. We're not naturally good. We're sinners in the hands of a holy God, and that presence terrifies us. We need to confront ourselves with this all-encompassing reality. And finally, therefore, what is the purpose of God's word? So if we saw why we need God's word, God's revelation in nature doesn't revive the soul. We saw how it works by showing us that we repress the truth in both hidden ways and conscious ways. So we saw, therefore, how it worked, that we, we need reviving by being confronted with these warnings against us. What is the purpose of the word of God? Is it simply to further warn us? No. Notice again in verse 12, it says that from these hidden faults, and verse 13, from these great transgressions and these presumptuous sins, we can be declared innocent. Notice that this declaration of innocence needs to come from God himself, comes from outside of us. In other words, redemption cannot come from within us. It must come from outside of us. And even though we've committed all these hidden faults, even though we've committed these presumptuous sins, even though we've committed great transgression, Verses 12 to 13 says to us, we can be rendered and declared innocent. In fact, the last verse communicates this to us in amazingly bold ways. It says in this prayer of the psalmist that our words and the meditations of our hearts can become acceptable in the sight of God. Well, how can that be? If we've committed great sins, if we have all these unconscious hidden faults, how can we be declared innocent and how can the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth be declared acceptable in the sight of holy God? Well, the key to all this, friends, is found in the last part of verse 14. Notice what the psalmist calls God. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Notice here these three phrases, right? God is my Lord, God is my rock, and God is my redeemer. Notice here this name, Lord, the caps that you see in your ESVs or your Bibles at home, right? L-O-R-D, that is a translation of the Hebrew name of God, uh, Yahweh, the covenanting God who's condescended to Abraham, Moses, Isaac, right? The, The fathers of Israel, this is the God who's not only transcendent, but also in relation with his people. And therefore, this Lord is the one who's revealed himself in word and deed and not only in nature. And notice something that you saw. Remember how the psalm is divided into two parts, verses 1 to 6 on the one hand and verses 7 to 14 on the other. Notice how in verses 1 to 6, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, L-O-R-D in all caps in the English translations, is not mentioned. In other words, God's revelation in creation does not reveal the name of God. It reveals that God is glorious, but it doesn't reveal that God is, can be known in relationship with you. 
that this is not the God of the covenant of Israel. This is not the God who covenants with his people. In other words, God's revelation in nature reveals God's glory as your judge and not as your redeemer, as your maker and not as your savior. God's revelation in nature reveals God's glory but not God's intimacy with you. Only when you get to the word of God in verse 7 is the name of the Lord actually mentioned. The law of the Lord is perfect. In other words, the law of Yahweh, the one who's revealed himself in words and deeds redemptively to you, he is known. And that is what revives your soul. In other words, when you are warned about how bad you are in verses 12 to 13, right? You're warned so that you might no longer look upon yourself as your mediator and as your help and as your savior, as your redeemer, but rather to the Lord, who's not only glorious, but also majestic in his mercy, condescending to you. And hence, your rock or your anchor, your, your secure foundation for a hope of the future, that you might be rendered innocent and righteous before God himself, is not in yourself, not in your achievements or your record, but rather in his record and what he's done for you. And hence, he is your redeemer. What does a redeemer do? A redeemer moves you from one state to another. A redeemer transitions you from a state of darkness and futility and sin and wrath to a state of grace. God is the one who is your savior. And this is what the word of the Lord's purpose is. Friends, why do you read your Bibles? Why do you come to church and listen to the sermons? I think a lot of us come in precisely by missing the purpose of the word of God itself. A lot of us come in uh, simply to feel an emotional release. A lot of us come in because we want better principles to, to help our marriages. Or a lot of us come in to even become more financially sustainable or to get some kind of blessing from God that is apart from this redemption, friends. And hence, when you come to the Bible with that kind of mindset, when you come to church with that kind of mindset, you're actually saying that this Bible's purpose is simply to help you become a better person by self-help. You're coming in and saying to yourself, how do I better myself with my own exertion and my own effort? Or you're coming in simply for the gifts of God and not for God himself. And when you do this, you're going to find yourself being burned out by the word of God. Because when you come to the scriptures and you come to the church with your burdens and your guilt, you're going to see simply more guilt of how you fail in your marriage, of how you fail in your businesses, how you fail financially. You're going to see more burdens carried upon your load, and you're not going to find the law of the Lord as reviving. You're not going to find the Lord the Lord and, and his word as enlightening or rejoicing. The only way, friends, that we can see the word of God as making us wise is we first see that we're simple. The only way we can see it as making us revived is only if we see that we're dead. The only way we can make the word of God rejoicing to us is if we actually come to the central purpose of this word. It is not merely to order society or merely to pragmatically and practically help us. It is primarily to present to us this Lord, our rock and our redeemer, Yahweh. And friends, this is what the psalm ultimately declares to us. The climactic name of God is not merely that he's Yahweh, the self-existent one who covenants with us, and that he is our redeemer and as an abstract title, 
But friends, he has come as the one who saves Yeshua, who is Jesus himself, who is the savior of humanity. And friends, when we think about the law of the Lord, we're no longer thinking about the law of the Lord as embedded in the Ten Commandments, though that's necessary. We're thinking of the law of the Lord as reflected in the character of Jesus Christ. When the law of the Lord is proclaimed to us, we see him being perfect. We see him reviving the soul. We see him being the testimony of the word of God himself because he is not merely the one who reveals God, but he is God who come in the flesh. It is his testimony that makes us wise. It is his precepts that makes us rejoicing. And it is his commandments that makes us enlightened, friends. Jesus Christ is the purpose of the word of God, and Jesus Christ is the word of God. When you come to church and you read your scriptures, rejoice in it precisely because it points you away from yourself. It warns you about yourself and to point you to the one who has died on your behalf. Because friends, that sense of inadequacy that you feel, the sense that you're guilty, that guilt is the one that was carried on Jesus' shoulders to the cross of Golgotha. That guilt is that which was punished in him when he died for you on that cross. And as he was the one who fulfilled all these commandments and all of the testimonies and precepts of God, he obeyed that actively in your place. And hence, this is the only way we can eradicate that guilt and sense of anxiety and inadequacy that we feel simply by existing in God's world. Friends, God accepts you not because he simply validates you where you are. God accepts you in Jesus Christ. And only when you look upon him can you get rid of yourself of that existential burden of carrying the anxieties and inadequacies that you know that the validation of the world cannot accrue to you, that the validation of the money and wealth and fame cannot give you, as we saw before. Only when you look to him, the central purpose, can we see, therefore, the rejoicing that the Bible promises to us, not in yourself, but in your Redeemer, in Christ Jesus. Go now in that peace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace that you have not only revealed yourself in creation, declaring to us your majesty and glory, but you've also given us particular, special word, verbal revelation, Father, not only in the scriptures, but also in Christ Jesus, your only son. So Father, help us rest in him, the word of God himself, and help us therefore take priority in the central purpose of the Bible and not in any other blessing or hope. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, as we close our online service together here and uh, our time together, let me now just give us our benediction from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go now in his peace.